Well, I always get a little bit nostalgic when uh, a series comes <laughs> to a close. I, I, I've really been enjoying this series. Oh, I forgot. We got to dismiss our kids. If there are still young people here, um, fifth grade and younger, and uh, you want to head over to these doors, you can head that way, and um, they'll take a good care of you for the rest of, of the morning. Well, like I was saying, I get a little nostalgic sometimes at the end of a series and think, okay, did I say everything that I was on my heart to say, and, and did I do everything that I felt God wanted to be done in that? And in the last week, I've been really encouraged as people have sent notes and texts and messages to indicate how uh, God is speaking to them through this series, what's true about you. And it was a good reminder to me that uh, we live in a world that doesn't tell us the same things that God's Word tells us about ourselves. And uh, so that's what we've been talking about over the last uh, four weeks. And if you missed one of those messages, I know summer is a busy time and we're coming and we're going and we're doing different things. Um, if you missed one of those messages, you can go to our website uh, and you can listen to it there. Just go to linwoodchurch.org and then click media. And uh, the last six messages are always there. You can go to the podcast, through iTunes, or, or um, the, the iTunes website, and you can find it there as well. And it goes back even a little bit farther. Uh, but we've been talking about this idea that the world lies to us all day long and tells us things about ourselves that aren't necessarily true. And that God's Word speaks to us as well. And we can replace the world's lies with God's truths for us. And Jesus said, you shall know the truth. And the truth shall set you free, free to live the rich and satisfying life that he died for each and every one of us to have. Uh, Matt, I think I'm still in the monitors, and as much as I want them to hear me, I don't want to hear myself. It throws me off a little bit, and I don't know, is, is that something you can fix? Not necessarily? Okay, no big deal. Um, so I want to review a little bit since it's the last week in the message series, and that's better. And... Uh, and we'll go through this one more time because, as I've said, we need to hear these things over and over because we've been hearing the lies for so long that we need to replace the lies with God's truth. And so week one, we started this whole thing off with this, this truth about you, that you are a beloved child of God in whom Christ dwells and delights. And we talked about how the first phrase of that, that you are beloved, that you were created by God to be loved by God is true for every single person in this room, every single person who has ever been or will ever be. And the rest that follows it, follows it if you have a relationship, a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we talk about this, this reality that, that if you're here to explore and you're, you're trying to figure out what Christianity is all about and, and you're trying to understand why anybody would want to put their, their faith and their hope and their trust in the person of Jesus Christ, then this, the rest of the series that has flowed from that has really been uh, some of the reasons that you might want to choose to take that step of faith and to believe and receive and become a child of God, then the rest is true. Then God literally dwells within you. Jesus Christ dwells in each and every one of his children, and he delights in you. He looks at you. God looks at you from heaven and sees Jesus in you. And so that was the first week. Week two, we talked about uh, not who you are, but where you are. You are safe and secure in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God, which is never 
in trouble, that if you have accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior and come into a relationship with him, then you take up residence in the kingdom of God. That the, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is not our destination once we die. The Bible tells us we're not going to die, that we're going to live forever, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but shall have everlasting life. And we have that life in the kingdom of God that is safe and secure. It is strong and unshakable, and it is never ever in trouble. Then last week we looked at this idea that you are never alone and you are never lost because Jesus is always with you and he is not lost. He cannot be lost. And if you're with somebody who knows where they are and where they're going, you are not lost, right? And so we've talked about who you are. We've talked about where you are. We've talked about who's with you. This week we're going to talk about what you are. You are enough. You are enough because God says you are enough. And as we uncover what this means, we have to start with what it doesn't mean because the world screams at us that you are not enough. You are not enough. It tells us just the opposite. You're not smart enough, attractive enough, strong enough, skinny enough, wealthy enough, successful enough. We've heard it from our parents. We've heard it from our siblings. We've heard it from coworkers. We've heard it from bullies on the playground. We've heard it from the people that should have been telling us the opposite. We've heard it in every advertisement. The whole premise of advertisement is usually based on the idea that what you have now is not enough, and you need something else, some product, some service, in order to be and have Enough, And yet God's word tells us, you're enough. Christ in you is enough. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And, and we're really peeling back the, the power of shame. So we have to understand the power of shame and we have to understand the, the way that shame works. One uh, pastor and author and speaker that I, I listen to occasionally, his name is Ian Crone, and he has said that the most powerful force in the world is love, and the second most powerful force is shame. That, that shame compels us to do things that we would never do otherwise. And yet God's love is still more powerful, and God's love is the one thing that can reverse the effects of shame over time. And it can transform us and transform our shame-ridden hearts into what he has designed us to be. Sometimes we confuse shame and guilt. You see, guilt deals with something that we did. It deals with an action, and it says what you did was wrong. And sometimes we confuse shame and guilt, or even conviction. God's conviction will come and will correct us and tell us what happened there was wrong. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. That is shame. I'm sorry, that is guilt or conviction. Shame deals with your identity and says there's something wrong with you. There's you're wrong, you're bad, what, not just what you did, but who you are. And if we're not careful, we'll confuse the two and we'll think that the message that's coming from God that's meant to convict us and change our behavior to bring us more in line with who he is is a message of shame that is saying, you're bad, you're, you're unworthy. But God doesn't deal in shame. God doesn't deal in shame. And that's why we don't deal in shame here either. And we don't use shame to, to try to motivate good behavior. A lot of psychology today is understanding the link between shame and all kinds of bad behavior. And they've come to the conclusion that nothing positive has ever come from a shame motivation. 
that it might short-term, but long-term, it, it erodes parts of us that really need uh, to be built up and encouraged and strengthened through love. And so there's a couple of ways that shame works in our lives, and, and I've only understood this partially. There may be other, other ways, but what I have seen and what I have researched and what I have experienced is that shame works in one of two ways most of the time. You either try harder or you give up. You either try harder, either to prove yourself to prove the, the good things that were said about you right or the bad things that were said about you wrong. You work harder to prove what people have said about you, either to prove the good things right or the bad things wrong. And so if you heard a lot of, of negative messages growing up, you might have had a strong desire to prove those people wrong, and it's shame that's motivating you to act in the way that you act. Or maybe you heard a lot of good messages and yet you took on the pressure. Nobody probably told you to do this, but this was part of my story. I didn't think I had a shame issue until I realized that, that shame was compelling me to prove all the good things that anybody had ever said about me right. And so I had all this pressure and, and, and nobody told me, but I believed a lie somewhere along the way that said you're only worthy of love, you're only worthy of respect, you're only worthy of people's time and attention if you keep on performing at a certain level, if you keep on performing and you prove all the good things that they have said about you right. And so I dealt with all this pressure to perform and to find value and worth in what I could do. So that's one way that shame works is, is to prove the good things right or the bad things wrong. And, and it motivates our action and our behavior. The other way that shame works is to just overwhelm us and we give up and we quit. And we say, I'm not even going to try anymore. I can't do it. I be, we start to believe the lie that we are not worthy of love, that we are not worthy of anything different than what we are. But God's truth, God's truth is that you are enough. You are enough because he says you are enough. God's truth is that you were created in and for a loving relationship with the God of the universe. And you have nothing to prove that you're worthy of his love because he created you, because he looks at you and sees his beloved creation. And if you've come to a relationship with Jesus Christ, then he looks at you and sees a beloved child. And he wants you to know what's true about you. And so as we come into a relationship with Christ, we take on a new collective identity that all of those who are in a relationship with Jesus Christ, what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, becomes our core identity. And he says to us, and you can turn uh, to, to page 1888 in the Pew Bibles. We don't have quite as many scriptures today, so I didn't put them on the screen because I want you to be reading them in your hand. There's a Bible in the seat back in front of you, um, or you can pull this up on a digital device of some sort or bring a Bible with you to church, there's a novel idea, and read God's Word as we go through it together. The, the translation is not as important as the fact that you have a copy of God's Word in your hand. And this is what Peter says as he writes this general letter to the church, to those who are in Christ, who have placed their hope and their faith and their trust on the living stone of Jesus Christ. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light, called you out of the lies into his truth. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you hear any shame in those verses? Is there any, any part of the new collective identity that is rooted in what we are not? 
It's all rooted in what God says is true about each and every one of us, that we are chosen, that we are invited into and become a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, so that there's work to do in this verse, so that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is good news. This is our new identity. This is our new God-given identity in Jesus Christ. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this applies to you, and he compels you, and he desires that you would pattern your life more and more and more after the life of Jesus Christ. In fact, I almost used Colossians 3.12, which is a very similar passage, but we're going to be starting a new series on Colossians chapter 3 next week. So I thought, well, I'll save verse 12 for you. But that's where God addresses us as his chosen people, holy and dearly loved. And that's our identity in Christ, that we are chosen, we are holy, set apart, we are dearly loved. But next week we'll start a new sermon series titled Heavenly Minded and Earthly Good. How many of you ever heard that phrase, that, that quote from Oliver Wendell Holmes? Oh, they're so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. Have you ever heard that? Maybe not. Okay, I see a few nods. I see a few hands even going up. That's pretty good. I don't always get hands raised. But there's this idea sometimes that church folk are so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good. And yet I see very clearly when I read Colossians chapter 3 that we are called to set our minds on the things above where Christ is... And we're called to do good here on earth. And that that chapter of scripture contains so many good practical instructions on how we're to live with our minds set on heaven and yet live with our hands and feet doing good in our relationships here, doing good in the world around us, doing good in our families. And so the next five weeks we'll be doing a series titled Heavenly Minded and Earthly Good. And I hope that you'll join us for that. And I hope you'll invite somebody to come along. If you know some families that are trying to figure some things out, a lot of Colossians 3 deals with the family and deals with our relationships and deals with how we are to interact with each other. It would be a great opportunity to invite them to become a part of that so that we wouldn't be a people who are so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good. Rather, we'd be so heavenly-minded that we're even more earthly good, that we are on mission with God to reconcile this dark and dying world into a relationship with him. And so, as we continue with this idea, I want to move on to a passage of Scripture. It's one of the most famous passages in the New Testament. I see it all the time. I see it primarily in sporting events. It's Philippians 4.13. How many of you are familiar with Philippians 4.13? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, right? Do you think he had a basketball game or a marathon in mind or climbing a mountain or something like that when Paul wrote those, verse, those words, that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength? I see that one on social media a lot, and I like that a little bit more. Not that I have a problem with an athlete writing that on their shoes. That's not the point at all. It just has to do with the context that it was said in is so much broader than a sporting event or so much broader than an isolated challenge that we've undertaken. The context of Philippians chapter 4 starts about a verse and a half earlier. And so when we read about this idea that we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength, it's so much more than an event. It's a life. It's an identity that we have in Jesus Christ. It can be part of our 
core identity. So if we back up to verse 11, the second half of that verse, see Paul's addressing something specific within the, the Philippian church and how they were able to support him financially. And then he says, For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Verse 12, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. You see, the broader context of this verse that we see so often is that we can do all things in our new identity with Christ, that with much or with little, hungry or well-fed, having everything we need or, or having a lot of needs in our lives, we can realize that Christ is enough that Jesus Christ is enough, that we can be content with our external circumstances in such a way that we realize when Christ is enough and Christ is in me, then Christ in me is enough. You follow the train of logic there? That if Christ is enough and Christ is in me, then Christ in me is enough and you are enough in Christ. In fact, the amplified version of this passage. I don't know how many of you ever read the Amplified Version. I love it when I get stuck. I love it when I get stuck on a passage and I can't quite piece it all together. The Amplified Version takes key words and phrases and amplifies them. And it was the work of many people funded by a charitable foundation to to really make Scripture more accessible to people at a time before the Internet brought everything to your fingertips. And so you could pick up an Amplified Bible and you'd get words, key words, expanded or clarified um, in a way that is really, really helpful. The Amplified Version translates verse 13, picking up the context of verse 11 and 12, saying, I can do all things which he has called me to do through him who strengthens and empowers me to fulfill his purpose. I am self-sufficient in Christ's sufficiency. Because Christ is in me, I am self-sufficient in Christ's sufficiency. I am not self-sufficient on my own. I'm self-sufficient in Christ's sufficiency. I'm ready for anything and equal to anything through him who infuses me with inner strength and confident peace. The truth about you is that you're enough. Not more than enough that we would get a big head about it, and not less than enough that we would feel unequal to the tasks that God may place before us, that we are enough. And enoughness is all about sufficiency. It's all about having just enough. And you are enough if Christ is in you. You are enough in Christ. Not too much, not too little. So our bottom line today is that you are enough because God says you're enough because he looks at you And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, he sees Jesus in you. And he sees that you are enough. You are equal to the task. You are enough because God says you are enough. So to back this all the way up to all the people who have told us otherwise, I have a question for you. And it's a really important question. I want you to think about it for a while, especially if you've ever struggled with shame or with people, especially those closest to you who should have been building you up and encouraging you, tearing you down. Here's the question, the key question for today and really for this whole series. If God and anyone else disagree on what's true about you, who's right? If God and anyone else, even yourself, 
Because sometimes we can develop a pretty harsh inner critic as we hear these different words and these different messages that come to us from media and advertisement and television, all those different things, and the people close to us. We can develop a pretty harsh inner critic that can be our worst nightmare, our worst enemy. But if God and anyone else, even yourself, disagree on what's true about you, who's right? And the answer to the question is kind of given away with the capital W. I always capitalize pronouns for God. I just think we ought to. Kind of bothers me when translations don't. But God is right. What God says is true about you has the trump card over all the other things, all the other messages that, that anyone has ever said to you. And as we dig into his word and as we grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ and we discover and live out and live through what God says is true about us, his love transforms us. And he changes us. And so as we finish this series, I want to kind of review the series. And each week we've, we've had a bottom line that was a you are statement. But I've changed them on the screen. And I want to challenge you to do something that might be just a little bit uncomfortable. But I want to challenge you to say these out loud as an I am statement. As an I am statement. And so they're on the screen behind me. The week one bottom line. I'm going to say it nice and loud in a declarative voice, if you will join with me, say, I am a beloved child of God in whom Christ dwells and delights. Do you believe that that could be your identity, your core identity, at the very heart of who you are? Week two, I am safe and secure in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God, which is never in trouble. Amen. Week three, I am never alone, and I am never lost, because Jesus is with, is with me, and he is never lost. Lastly today, I am enough, because God says I am enough. Now, do you feel slightly more powerful and more confident and more assured of God's love for you than you did two minutes ago? Does anybody feel less? Wouldn't think so. There's power in these. We talked about this from the very beginning. These are power narratives. That there are narratives and there are messages that we've been hearing all our lives. And some of them are true and some of them are false. These are what God says is true about us. And there are others, but these are the four that I really wanted to share with you to transform you into who he wants you to be. Some of you maybe already know this. Some of you maybe had wonderful parents or mentors or people who spoke these things over you. And if that's the case, go be that person for someone else. If you already know this and you believe it and you've embraced it, then you are the person to take it to somebody who doesn't know what's true about them. But if you're hearing this for the first time, you need to hear it again and you need to hear it again and you need to hear it again. In fact, that's one of the reasons that we printed off these journals that are available down here. It's a what's true about you journal, and I tell you all the time about journaling, and I'm probably not going to get off this horse, so you might as well get on it. But (laughs) the what's true about you journal is a seven-day journal. I was inspired by Pastor Zach when he put something in your hands on the week of humility when he preached in uh, in the Family of Family series. But it's seven days. And I told you early on, if you would write these out every day for a week and every week for a year, it will change you. It will make you different. It will help you to believe what's true about you. And so we have, uh, each day, we have 
the statements that we just said out loud in a form, and then there's lined paper where you can just write them out in your own hand. And then there's a question and something that you can use to interact with God. You can write out a prayer. You can interact uh, in some way uh, with that each day with the space that remains. And my hope and my prayer is that this will just be the start and that you'll continue to journal and that each week you will write these affirmations out yourself because the truth needs to be reinforced. For me personally, I spent the majority of my life thinking I had to prove all the good things right and all the bad things wrong. And when I finally realized I couldn't, that's when I was ready to give up. And yet God was there. And he started to teach me some different things and invite me to reinforce that and to preach the gospel to myself and to preach the good news to myself. So I want to encourage you in our time of response to pick one of these up. Unless you have any doubt, I was writing this out this morning in my journal. I thought I'm going to share that just because it was natural. I thought, you know what, I'm talking about this today, and there's the top half of the page of my journal today. I write these out at least once a week. And we say them in our family all the time. Our kids are probably getting tired of it. But until, until they rattle right off the tongue, you haven't really embraced it yet. And so I want to encourage you to do this. And if it just helps you reinforce the language so that you can share it with somebody else, that's valuable as well. And when you get to the end of day seven, I want you to pick up a journal, pick up a notepad, pick up a notebook. Maybe you do better on a, on a, on a digital device of some sort. But continue to journal. Continue to, to do this. Continue to reflect on the day behind or to Forecast the day ahead and imagine the different things you're going to do and invite Jesus into every one of those experiences. Because it's easy to get derailed. And every time I get derailed, I ask myself, what did I forget? What did I forget that was true about me in that moment when I lost my temper and yelled at the kids or in that moment where I beat myself up and in that moment where I picked up stones figuratively to throw at somebody else? What did I forget was true about myself or what was true about them? And this can be a really helpful exercise to you. So in the time of response, I want to invite you to come forward and pick one up. There aren't any out in the lobby. I want you to come get one. There'll be plenty of time to do that. They're on each of the prayer altars, and you're invited to stop and pray at the prayer altar for a while if you'd like to. If you pray at these middle ones, you can just pray by yourself. If you pray on the sides... Somebody will keep an eye out for you, and if we see you there, we'll go put a hand on your shoulder and just pray for you while you're there. An elder, a board member, a pastor. This is an opportunity to respond to God in faith. This is an opportunity to embrace what's true about you. And my hope and prayer is that each and every one of us will do just that. I'm going to read some more of Paul's words as we close. And this is from Ephesians chapter 3. I don't want you necessarily reading along. I just want you to hear these words spoken over you. This is the last uh, seven or eight verses of Ephesians chapter 3. Would you pray with me? For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and how long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know that this love that surpasses knowledge is for you that you may be filled to the measure 
of all the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Lord, make these words true for each and every person in this room. For those that do not yet have a relationship with you, Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they confess their sin, confess their need of a Savior, invite you into their lives to lead them to your heart, to lead them into a relationship with you, to lead them into a rich and satisfying life that you're dying for them to have. And for the rest of us, Lord, may we join you in your mission to take this good news to a world that desperately needs it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.